Yeah, Afghanistan was supposed to be, there were supposed to be Chipotles there now. It was supposed to have like nice resorts. What do you think is gonna, there probably are Chipotles there in like the, the Bagram, whatever military, but like in the area that the soldiers went to. There probably were. What do you think is going to happen to those now? Is the Taliban? <laughs> Chipotle. Gonna, yeah, do they think they like Chipotle? <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone from the Taliban is listening to this, can you please tell us if you like Chipotle? Or <laughs> any American if, fast food, if there's anything, yeah. anything at all that you like. It would be funny if everything else fell apart, and they, but yet the Chipotles were still running. Like the Taliban made sure that there was a really smooth transition and that there was no, um, you know, they well, had all the pork. There was they never a, run out of pork in Afghanistan. <laughs> the barbecue or what? The carnitas. Yeah, barbacoa. Uh, <laughs> there. The, that's a funny. That's a funnier one. Barbacoa, right? Well, that's beef, though. But actually, there was a guy. So there was Tom Friedman. You know Tom Friedman? Yeah, he's he, um he's a guy with no chin, right? Yeah. But for the New York Times, right? Pussy duster under his lip. That's right. right? That's right. Yeah. He had a theory, I think it's called like the McDonald the the McDonald's peace theory or something, or the Golden Arches peace theory or something, which is like you know there's people who say like there's democracies don't fight each other in wars, which is not really true. But Tom Friedman, being the genius that he is, he took that one step further and he said, "There's never been a war between two countries that have a McDonald's." <laughs> which that is also not true but it's it should be true it's very it's a very good thing it sounds true yeah yeah i guess the people write for the new york times are in the same vein as what we do just something feels true and it sounds <laughs> nice to say going with that as a version of truth if the new york times editorial board is listening uh, <laughs> they should yeah take some tips if you guys want some some more white men on your board <laughs> i would love to see your new york times a little drawing they make of you <laughs> that they put next to the articles yeah <laughs> and then the titles are something like you know nato what's next uh <laughs> nagler or something i don't know well i don't want to get too too creative with words to start with then but somebody who can represent ironic racism has ascended to the halls of the journal of record i bet paul krugman says it in private <laughs> i'd be fine if racism. ironic racism was a th it was a cultural moment that its head only popped up within certain circles of the internet for a minute and then just dissipates mm -hmm. you know like my children's children i just don't want them to know that i found that funny I think it would be funnier that way if it's like a secret yeah. that the, got lost in the dark. Historians discover it many centuries later, and they're like, "What did this mean? Why did they? <laughs> Why the did world's they keep best etymologists or whatever trying to deconstruct the the N word? What could they be referring to? Soft A. I don't. What's so funny about a cadence? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we we're out. We're done, um, or maybe not. Uh, there's no more war. 20 years of war in Afghanistan, and for what? It, what was our? Pro what did we win? What was our prize? 
and and the fact that i went back to the taliban too specifically like at least give it over to a new thing like isis or something like well that's the thing so isis is now the taliban fights isis now so now they're the good guys in our yeah the isis there's a new there's there's more guys in afghanistan now even the taliban thinks they're crazy now i think i think that's basically when trump to his credit started negotiating with the taliban in in the last year of his administration that i think was the motivations behind it was that you know this in addition to like we're not going anywhere we're not making any progress we're not helping the afghan government to survive on its own we need to cut our losses here but also now there is a a worse group on the scene in afghanistan and the taliban is fighting them and so maybe we can just sort of rely on the taliban to keep things under control take me back to the beginning because that that seems like par for the course with american foreign policy like we found ourselves doing a very familiar thing at the end but like uh i don't know i was just thinking about it kind of sporadically this week and remembering you know the neoconservative genesis of the whole project uh somewhere i picked up along the way this linear thread of like that I think harkens back to maybe Kissinger or something, or at least Kissingerian ideas that are like associated with Leo Strauss, this professor who was a big um, person who was like popular with neoconservatives who like his philosophy was like arguing like you create reality, like you act and then reality forms itself around an action. And so like Afghanistan and to and Iraq and occupations or freedom movements that we uh, wrote up here in America kind of had their genesis in philosophical origins that bled into people like Donald Rumsfeld, who are in the halls of power. And then just these are just loose thoughts. And then thinking about way back when I remember George Bush always saying like, well, we'll see what happens. It may look like shit right now, but let's just see. Just wait and see. History is going to prove it, you know? Oh, and now he's somewhere, damn. you know, I drawing him. cats. So much. So there definitely was and, and probably still is that strain of neoconservatism out there. And they definitely had a, an impact on American foreign policy. But I'm not sure that the Afghan invasion in particular needs to be explained by that stuff and because those guys weren't interested in afghanistan to begin with really i mean afghanistan is just i mean what's in afghanistan it's, it's a bunch of mountains there's lithium there i guess or something but they found that like later they found that um 2013 or something and so maybe that explains why we stayed in there for so long but they didn't know about that stuff uh before then afghanistan you know i mean if you're if you've got some grand project to remake the middle east if it's some project to serve israeli interests or uh spread democracy in the middle east or whatever theory you have about these guys i don't know why you would pick afghanistan to begin with i know michael moore had a theory about like uh you know in fahrenheit 9 11 about the a pipeline or something that they ran through afghanistan i don't know about that i think Basically, the reason why we attacked Afghanistan is because we had to do something after 9-11. We had to blow somebody up. Uh, we couldn't do it to Saudi Arabia. So, and Afghanistan was maybe after Saudi Arabia, the country that had the most links to Al-Qaeda. 
so we bombed Afghanistan. That's about but it couldn't have it. been that cynical. It couldn't have been just a raw, just like like we just have to do something to show we're doing. Why and not? It must have been some that it must have lined up for the Pentagon in some kind of strategic fashion. Why couldn't it have been that simple? Why could it have not been? <laughs> well, I don't know. You go with the simplest explanation, right? You go Occam's razor. Oh God! Well, when it Sorry, comes, to- is that? Is this, is this just oh, we, come on are we gonna just have to end the episode now who the hell am i talking to yeah <laughs> i'm sorry okay all right all right boring. fine fine you uh, just don't want to get into it i don't know i you mean, know there's I, a list in the pentagon somewhere of like i just don't like you don't you don't think this has something to do with it really you know the global balance of power and iraq I could, putting a, a whole- check on russia even if it's like five degrees away from like a direct you know confrontation it's like a check on them or something like we can have planes here and fuck with you I mean, like we- there has to be multiple if, if something like that that big is going to happen there have to be multiple forces of power especially in a country like america that converge that see a shared interest in in making something as think, monumental as I that think happened. your interest you're underestimating how dumb and scared and uh just rash and mad and stupid our leaders were in the aftermath the immediate aftermath of 9/11 they that happened and they were like what the fuck how how what are, what are we going to do like what like we have to kill some people who they went down a list of who what countries they have to bomb and they were like the saudis well uh no we can't really attack the saudi and and then they went well who's who else is harboring al-qaeda and like who has who else has training camps and like afghanistan and even though there was no real evidence that the taliban really knew about 9-11 and the taliban even offered to give osama up if we provided evidence uh we just refused to do that and then we just bombed the Taliban so that we could, so they could, they could go home and tell the American people that that we bombed somebody. I, I'm not I'm not at all against theory. I mean, we did a whole episode on Iraq and how that, in my view, was part of a broader strategic realignment of the Middle East that that failed. But I think it was that is what they had in mind. But Afghanistan. I just don't see why Afghanistan would be strategically important. I mean, you mentioned Russia, but but Russia had um, Russia was fully in support of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. It, Russia and China, Ru- Russia saw it, this whole thing. They saw the war on terror as a perfect excuse to bring the hammer down on Chechnya once more, and and their own their own Muslim insurgents. The same with China with the Uyghurs and uh, Israel with the Palestinians and. Um, anybody who had uh, India with Kashmir, anybody who had a restless uh, Muslim minority or a Muslim population that they had under subjugation, they saw the invasion of Afghanistan and the U.S. war on terror generally in the beginning as perfectly suited to their their goals with regard to those populations. Oh, weapons manufacturers and whatever and pipelines and, you know, like kind of conspiracy, which sometimes is true, but... They definitely got rich off this stuff, but but as I said, I think in the Iraq episode, they they always get rich off any war. So, what do you think the plan was from the outset from those guys, from the neoconservatives? 
well, okay, so Bush I think, administration that they think they were going to get in, fuck, get out. You know, I think um, you can distinguish between the invasion of Afghanistan and the mm, overthrow of the Taliban, okay. bombing, getting rid of the, the training camps, all that stuff. Versus then the subsequent occupation and the nation building and all that. I think was it a was it a, a, a an act of learning you, when you break it you buy it uh, syndrome or I think maybe the neocons saw this as a test run for Iraq. Maybe you know if we go back to the Iraq episode we did, I think the neocons they wanted to invade. We know they wanted to invade Iraq before nine eleven. There's a project for a new American century, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, they've been talking about it ever since the in the first Gulf War when George H. W. Bush didn't invade Iraq and overthrow Saddam. They've been they've been itching to do that. They apparently convinced Cheney at some point to do it, even though Cheney had been in charge of making the decision not to march to Baghdad in the first Gulf War. They were thinking about invading Iraq before 9/11, and I think after 9/11, they said now is the time. But we have to invade Afghanistan first because even they didn't think that they could immediately just invade Iraq and say, yep, Iraq was the country most connected to Al-Qaeda, so let's invade Iraq. They, even they didn't think that they could sell that to the American people. So it had to be Afghan. It couldn't be Saudi Arabia yet, right? I mean, that that was the my theory about the project for Iraq, that it was meant to give us some leverage over Saudi Arabia, give make us able to distance ourselves from Saudi Arabia eventually, but we couldn't just bomb Saudi Arabia, right? So it had to be Afghanistan. But then once we invade Afghanistan, rather than just bomb the hell out of the Taliban, bomb the training camps, kill a bunch of people, and then leave, the neocons, I think, said, let's stay. 9-11, the neocons wanted to, they wanted to invade Iraq before 9-11, and then they when 9-11 happened, they were like, okay, now's the time, but they couldn't They couldn't just immediately invade Iraq because nobody would believe that Iraq was the country that was most connected to Al-Qaeda and most responsible for 9-11. And they couldn't just bomb Saudi Arabia because, like I said, I, I think that they invaded Iraq in order to distance America from Saudi Arabia and get some leverage over them, but they can't just bomb Saudi Arabia. They're too important of an ally. So... Next on the list, was... and I think I remember us talking about this to some extent. So it's almost like the opposite of what Michael Moore was suggesting in, like Fahrenheit nine eleven. Like it, it, you know, all these connections between the Saudis and George Bush, like these uh, invasion projects, were actually designed to kind of get us out of that um, mm -hmm. bad bad relationship. Yeah, and maybe not on the part of Bush himself. Because um, Bush really was, thats it's true, there were plenty of connections between the Bush family and the Saudi royal family, uh, but I don't think Bush necessarily understood the full significance of of this plan. So where does um, that intent come from? From just the Pentagon as this kind of... I think the, I think the Pentagon, the, the civilian leaders in the Pentagon, like Wolfowitz, Pearl, Fife... Um, yeah, and the Wolfowitz was one of the big Strauss guys. Yeah, I think, right. Yeah. I think they had something in mind like that. Could be wrong, but that's what I think. But the Afghanistan, I think I think they had to go... They couldn't just do Iraq first. Next on the list was Afghanistan. 
So, but then once we invaded Afghanistan, we didn't just do a hit and run. We didn't just bomb the Taliban, overthrow them, put the Northern Alliance in, bomb the training camps, kill a bunch of people, and then get out. That's what we could have done. What we did is we stayed there. And I think neoconservatives thought that Afghanistan could serve as a kind of test run or um, proof of concept for remaking a Middle Eastern or Central or South Asian or wherever Afghanistan is country into a friendly, democratic, pro-American, pro-Israel regime. I can almost take myself into that room. I'm trying to get there just for as a thought experiment of right. like being so up your own ass and so like specifically interested in thinking about history and conflict in this kind of detached two-dimensional mm-hmm. chessboard way, despite your very, even if you have had the very best intent inviting all these things upon you that you didn't even consider, like not even knowing the difference between Sunnis and Shias and all these things that in retrospect were huge debacles or thinking about selling it to the public or how the media was going to react. I think they did know the difference. These guys knew the difference between Sunni and Shia. Um, and I think they even had it in mind. You know, I think they, this is just pure speculation on my part, like overthrowing Saddam, not just overthrowing Saddam and not, and like putting a general in his place, like another Sunni general from the Ba'ath party in his place, not even doing that, but just purging the, the army and, purging the whole government of the Ba'ath Party and and criminalizing the Ba'ath Party, basically empowering the Shia for a while in Iraq. That was, I think, a fuck you to the Saudis because the Saudis have their own Shia population. I think I said this in, in that episode. The Saudis have their own Shia population in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia where the oil is. And they're they're always very worried that that's going to they're going to rebel. And and I think they're like, look, look what we can do. We can put we can put the uh, the heretics in charge of the country that's right next door to you. So don't fuck with us. I but they they had no idea like what the repercussions of that would be. Like you're going to empower Iran next door. And they were just thinking, they were thinking like very long like very long term and very short term at the same time. Like long term precisely in the places where they shouldn't have been thinking long term, and short term precisely in the cases <laughs> where they should have been thinking long term. <laughs> A hard and soft focus in exactly the wrong areas of, yeah. So I think, but <laughs> Afghanistan, you know, like, yeah, I think they just didn't get, they they probably knew less about Afghanistan than they knew about Iraq because, because they, because again, like they wanted to invade Iraq before 9-11. They'd been thinking about Iraq, at least the, the first Gulf War, probably before that. They probably studied Iraq a lot more. Plus Iraq is just a much more relevant country that people in the West know more about than Afghanistan. Say something, I mean, even before the war, if you're talking to like a, a person, educated person who knows something about the Middle East and you say, what can you tell me about what people who live in Iraq are? They'd say, well, there's Sunni, there's Arabs and Kurds, and then there's Sunni and Shia. You know, you could say a few basic facts. If you talk about Afghanistan, there's just a lot, there's, first of all, there's just a lot more groups. There's like the Pashto a lot of secrets the, in those caves. The Hazara and and the Tajiks and all these different groups, and it's it's further away from the West, and it's even knowing that you should be put on a no fly list. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you. I mean you. The fuck is 
You got knowledge. What's that yeah. about? <laughs> Trying uh, to draw you out. It's it's just a country that's sort of like out of the way. It doesn't have oil. It. I mean, it's it's important, I guess, in history because it's like a lot of empires, as people say, kind of crashed and burned there from Alexander the Great to the British Empire to the Soviet Union and now maybe to us. But I just people I don't think people paid as much attention to Afghanistan as they did to Iraq. And so they, so as a result, I think that's part of the explanation for why we screwed up so badly from the point of view of our intentions when we went in there. We just didn't know very much about it. It was supposed to be a test run for Iraq, like the idea like we could create a government in there that would serve as a model for what we could create in Iraq. And then after, even after that clearly wasn't working, then it was just sunk cost fallacy. You know, like we've already put so much into this, like let's try to get something out of it or it would be embarrassing if we just left and admitted that we got nothing out of it. So we just continued to stay there for 20 years. Well, and this is kind of a baby's logic to, you know, presidentialize it and mm -hmm. personalize it in the way they go like, well, then why did, uh, why did Barack Obama stay in there? He must have not get out or was his hands being held? It's like because he wasn't as I, based as Biden is. <laughs> he, He's he an old guy who doesn't give a shit. He knows his yeah. balls up against so he can just make decisive action or whatever. Seriously, this is this Biden is. Like, this is a good decision by Biden. The the base of the Republican Party is not interested in foreign occupations with no mm -hmm. end. And that's been, like, pretty much confirmed electorally and culturally. I don't actually think that foreign policy makes all that, is all that big of a concern in the minds of, like, rank-and-file voters of either party. No, no. But it seems but, to be a thread that they... Uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that they're enthusiastic about, about or staying... At least, uh, at least there's a very serious like reckoning with the and this is just a byproduct of a negative association with the republicanism of the george bush era mm -hmm. and like a wanting to reclaim it you know but it's also true that if you pay attention any attention to trump world and you read what they're saying and and listen to talk radio and so on, they are hammering biden for the as as you would expect them to do for the bad optics of the withdrawal. It wasn't the most competently done withdrawal. That's probably true. It, if, at least theoretically, they could have done it in a more competent way, got people out sooner. It's possible maybe that the Pentagon sabotaged Biden, I think, maybe to put on my uh, tinfoil hat here for a second, that they, because they did, we know they sabotaged Trump. We know that they lied to Trump about how many troops were in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, they sabotaged Jimmy Carter. Right, yeah. Working and with I, Reagan and And I think you know, that they I think that they sabotaged Iraq. uh I think they sabotaged Obama at the end of twenty sixteen by uh bombing after he did a ceasefire deal with Russia and the Syrian government by bombing Syrian troops. I so that that's totally possible, I think. Yes, theoretically it could have been done more competently, but here's the thing. A competent government that could have withdrawn from Afghanistan in the quote unquote ideal way would have done so fewer than 20 years after we invaded, right? The very fact that we fucking stayed there for two decades under three different presidents is proof that we suck as a nation and that we're not capable of doing anything right. All the resources that got sunk into this thing so, immediately got buttoned up to right back where it was, yeah. So you're complaining that we 
finally stopped doing this retarded thing, but we did it in a kind of retarded way. Do it with, yeah. What yeah. do you think? We're retards. It's like you're demanding, like, uh, please, you, you got to leave the high school. Let's get out of the high school dance. And then you're complaining about the, um, the gate of the person as they, if, as they walk through the door. Oh, Jimmy was limping. Yeah. This is a terrible <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jimmy, but you wanted Jimmy so out. Known for. So Jimmy's gone. Yeah. So I'm going with it. But, and then and then immediately turning back and just complaining about the the limp yeah sure nice <laughs> thank you uh i miss these metaphors <laughs> it's my favorite part of the show <laughs> yeah i mean this is we have to like we have to realize that we're just not good at this kind of thing and the least we can do is stop doing it and even if we stop doing it in a dumb way that gets a bunch of people killed or whatever at least we stop doing it and 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 by the way like big ups to biden like unironically there's no trump would not have done this i promise you trump if if this had started to happen under trump is it almost certainly would have right the taliban would have taken over uh it would have it would have looked obvious that the taliban was going to take over as we were pulling out uh trump would have went Oh no, people are gonna, they're gonna be mad at me and they're gonna call me stupid. And he would have stayed in, he would have put more troops in. There would have, or he would have been sabotaged. People would have, the, uh, the generals would have been like, oh yeah, Mr. President, we totally want to withdraw, but we can't, not just quite yet. We have to, we have to make sure that things are, and we would just stay there forever for another four years. What, what do you think the, not that neither of us are experts on this, but what do you think the logic of the generals has been for so long? Like they j are just glad, specifically with regards to Afghanistan, they're just glad to have a project and it's money project. rolling it's in. A, it's a Is way, it, it's a way to get promoted. It's, yeah. um, it's a way to get money and cool new shiny death toys. It's, you know, it's all that stuff. It's um, <laughs> it's a way to get contracts. If you, this isn't the Pentagon itself, but it's a way to get uh, contracts. If you're a military contractor, the possibility of of failure as a yeah. concept and, and is, so, and is it's embarrassing. A way to, it's it's yeah. it would be a, a blow to their credibility as it should be, but you know they don't want that. So, I mean, I like I don't like explanations that refer to you know the the military contractors or whatever trying to make money or the Pentagon trying to extend its influence in terms of why we go into a particular country because that happens with every country that we invade or anybody mm -hmm. invades somebody always makes yeah, there's money nothing of specific it. about the nature of any one country over the other that we get but in terms of why we stay there for so long that's a perfectly good explanation right and um, you, you alluded to lithium earlier so we were extracting yeah, they, they did uh, find pharmaceutical lithium. drugs they found lithium. Well, lithium is used for like batteries, I think. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> well, it like is the shit they give to uh, schizophrenics or whatever. <sighs> what is that makes them fat? What the fuck? Hold on, lithium. Let's just make this whole the rest of this episode trying to figure out what lithium is. Is it a drug? There's a Nirvana song called Lithium, which is like I would assume that's about yeah a drug maybe. The, the but then it, I've heard. It's like um, it's for it's used in batteries and stuff. It's used in um, this is not good. We should probably not be talking about stuff. That <laughs> we don't have any idea at all 
about, but that's what we're going to do anyway. It's yeah, it's used in batteries, ceramics, glass, electric, electronics. It is used in medicine. It's I treatment it's of the same, so it's useful in the treatment of bipolar disorder. Okay, bipolar. so or it's mostly used in ceramics and oh, batteries. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is true. They're the Taliban are sitting on one trillion dollars worth of minerals the world desperately needs, and among those are lithium. Um, yeah, so they found lithium, I think, like 2010, I want to say, 2013, something like that. But they didn't know that it was there before then. But sure, I mean, that could explain why we stayed in for a longer period of time. Yeah, I mean, now the Taliban's good. But the Taliban, I don't think they're going to do that well. I don't like, because for one thing, the subsidies to the Afghan government are going to get it cut off because that government has fallen we're not going to keep sending money to the Taliban. There's going to be a big drop. There's going to be a whole bunch of government employees, Afghan government employees who are going to be fired. There's going to be a big drop in living standards, and people are going to blame the Taliban. I don't know I would that assume the, the Taliban, Taliban doesn't know anything about mining for minerals. Well, you're right. There's also the, know how to do that. the people with the technical knowledge in Afghanistan and the education and so forth, they're going to get out of there probably the Taliban, you're going to be left with uh, a bunch of guys who know about goat herding and about keeping women in line and respectful of <laughs> their It's kind of like when we superiors. used to show up to parties, you know, <laughs> everybody with education or class or self-respect. They would just leave. Out. And then the misogynists, <laughs> would, there would just be uh, brutal misogynists left over. <laughs> um, fighting each other. And- fighting each other and fucking goats and <laughs> things like that yeah which uh, i'm not shitting on I, that that has its place it's fun yeah absolutely in in afghanistan that is the place for it <laughs> um so yeah i think i don't think the taliban and the taliban is not really that popular i read i mean they might be more popular than us as compared there, to but the they're, avengers they're not they're <laughs> not, compared to the marvel franchise <laughs> <laughs> they're the least hot property marvel's the taliban i I wouldn't envy the only people i envy uh the the only people i envy less than the taliban in terms of um people with the opportunity of running afghanistan are the previous american puppet government um (laughs) so the tab i mean this is a bad situation for anybody who wants to take over afghanistan it's gonna be a lot of God. Can you imagine being in the being just a born and raised Afghani in the stupid American Afghani yeah. army, and then this happening? Yeah, God, what I can just imagine, just like what the fuck was I doing? Yeah, this sucks. Like, well, <laughs> America's gonna be around, and they're I'm gonna be able to continue feeding my family, and um, yeah. and it's like no, sorry, but that you know, I mean. What should we do? Should we just stay there forever? I mean, that's that's the other thing. It's like, no, um, I know there's there's the collateral. You still have to have political beliefs. I, th- and, I think we should like but, let in a whole bunch of refugees. We should. We made this mess, so. Well, I, I know there's the position of morality, and uh, this relates to Afghanistan too. But you don't think we both directly benefit, at least from, not if we're talking about like. The accounting of like how much tax of our, our tax dollars goes towards like America's global 
presence as a military institution. But like, don't don't you think we do directly and indirectly benefit from America's self-proclaimed uh, position as the world's foremost and most powerful and most present military leader? Or do you think that that's actually a false I don't design from within the logic? Putting away anything about ethically what you think is right, whether you see yourself as a global citizen and whatnot. It's a complicated question. I, you know, I don't, because clearly we, like Americans do not benefit from certain aspects of our military presence abroad. I mean, like that's the whole cliche about how, you know, we spent this many trillion dollars in Iraq or Afghanistan. Think about what we could use with that money. We could fix this many bridges. We could pay for this many people's health care and so forth. So that's obviously something that doesn't benefit most Americans, certainly benefits some Americans, the military contractors and generals in the Pentagon. I don't see how that benefits most Americans. And then how is it that we finance this massive military spending that we do? We do it because we have the world reserve currency, right? The dollar, people want to buy uh, dollar securities. They want to loan us money. Um, and we've talked before on the show about how I don't think, and the people I've read don't think that that is good for us in the long term. This idea of, of us having the, the world's reserve currency and being the magnet for all this capital around the, the globe, that's not a good thing for us in terms of our domestic economic health either. So there's, there is a, a long tradition, you know, going to back to Lenin and, and others who say that like imperialism benefits at least certain sections of the domestic working class in the imperialist countries and it buys them off and it keeps them away from revolution and it turns them into reformists and even if that was true in Lenin's day which it might not have even then but but this is a very different kind of imperialism than the one that that Lenin was talking about so I don't know I I'm, I wouldn't be I'm open to hearing a case about how certain segments of the American, like significant segments of the American population benefit. So certainly like some people- It certainly benefit. wouldn't make sense if we just re took everything away from and just went completely isolationist tomorrow. That would well, create okay, so many yeah. ripple effects. There, <laughs> there are a number of, of communities in this country that depend on employment in military bases. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of military bases all through the country. And right. if we just start closing those, there were there would be a bunch of cities and towns that would just if we just cut them off cold turkey, they would go under. Filipino women who will never meet their husbands. Uh, uh, wait, or whatever. <laughs> <What is that? laughs> I don't know. Um, just whatever. There would yeah they would they would just keel over basically. So yeah, there are significant segments of the American population that depend on military largesse and we would have to have a a kind of transition plan you know they talk about how like a just transition for climate change for for uh workers in fossil fuel industries and things like that coal workers and so forth you have to yeah, find I mean, them the military is a huge it's a huge social like covert like social redistributionist yeah, I mean, especially in recent not not even eras, that covert. They, they buy them houses. They mm -hmm. like 
a lot of people in the military have multiple houses if you're a lifer yeah it's not even that covert sometimes it, it's yeah. um you know you, you'd have to find alternative employment for all those people i know this um, guy who just does business for the military an accountant or whatever but he's been a military lifer for and he's doing spreadsheets and shit with relation to yemen and oman and as right hand to god the guy does not know where those places are or what they are or why they're there <laughs> his wife has asked him like why do you think we're there he's like i don't know i'm just go to work and do business <laughs> just following orders so yeah there probably i there probably is some significant segment of like ordinary like regular americans not talking about people whose eyes just randomly turn yellow and and they're you get little slits for pupils at at times and you can pause the video and see it and, and they're, <laughs> i was they, wondering where you were going with that <laughs> they're, yeah, they're yeah, reptile they've got, they've got little forked tongues that slip out of their mouth and and to be clear are you for ending american imperialism in these specific military occupation whether as big as afghanistan or as small as germany is that a moral issue or is it more about the idea of, of american imperialism is something that's because i feel i sometimes i feel like america is just a business with the dressing of a nationality as as you know a, it's so vast and big and complicated that it's far from actually being a country as much as it might proclaim itself to be with you know some kind of vague notions about guys in puffy w wigs and and somebody hollering about the british are coming and errant tea bags being thrown into the water i feel like if anything came to threaten our military our military global military presence it would just reanoint itself as some kind of global be like well now there's a new stratosphere over the federal now we're just the nation of nato and anybody can join in us from anywhere and it's this is just vaguely like a democratic western free market capitalist supporting military industrial complex that no longer is like tied in with the identity of the federal government or the nationality of quote-unquote american which is already such a diluted shifting moving object if i think this that back. our occupational forces will or have already developed identity as a institution of their own even right. separate to interests of domestic stuff or even defending the nation's just explicitly only singularly defending the nation's interests that's so how interest. did, so how does that relate to the question you asked me like if you you asked me if i am against uh, american imperialism on moral grounds or if it had to do with the idea of american imperialism so like what what is that i guess i'm kind of so where would you be attacking it from as like a global citizen or as like a an american taxpayer and voter i mean it's both in right it's like well it, i mean sure it's a moral issue it's wrong like we shouldn't be engaging in these these wars these interventions um abroad but then it's also connected to a whole bunch of stuff that i think is a a good political project as well like if we want to build an actual welfare state in this country uh, the you know you look at the, at what federal spending is on and it's the biggest chunk is like social security medicare which we don't want to get rid of and medicaid which we don't want to get rid of 
And then the biggest one after that is the military. So we get rid of the insurance companies, but well, in terms in terms of like where how to get revenue to pay for social democracy, you would raise taxes. Obviously, if you're looking to cut things, you'd have to take it from the military. It's ironic because in order to do some kind of big push for more of a social project at a federal level in this country, yeah, you got to have that identity as a, a country. Right. Like a majority or at least a strong um, cohesive majority uh, needs to understand itself as connected to one another in order to like advance a project like this. And I think ironically, talking about Afghanistan and, and these the foreign occupations of the early aughts, those were some of not the singular reasons, but and concurrently 9-11 being the catalyst, I feel like was, I, and I think you mentioned this about when we were talking about Osama bin Laden as from his perspective as a brilliant move. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like ever since then, the national identity of, again, what the fuck do I know? I'm only 32, but I do feel national identity has been diluted you know, partially by these kind of vague, there's no narrative to them, wars that never ended and mm-hmm. end in defeat or failure or quiet withdrawal. So there's no citizen, patriot, military identity. And like, ironically, that dissipating for the average American or devolving into what it is now is these two polar opposite, you know, caught in time, identitarian arguments yeah. over basically nothing. And I think uh, what, what the, so the people has who, its genesis in the, in the early aughts in Afghanistan. The people yeah. who started and who supported these wars in the beginning, I think they thought that there would it was be the opposite. Right. Yeah. That it would unite us. It would rally us around that we create this <clears throat> renewed sense of patriotism. How often did you think about Afghanistan like day to day when you while we were there? Did you think oh, like you? Yeah woke up in the morning and you think we're at war no <laughs> no you just like no. got up and took a piss and you know like that's not how it worked in in world war ii in world war ii you could tell every day that we were at war i mean you might be over there right you might people you might were getting blankets you, 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 you your family members were there you were either there or you were working for there were there were rations you couldn't yeah. get you couldn't go to the store and just get bread if you wanted. They were like, nope, we're out of bread. You gotta, they gotta give it to the soldiers over there. You could tell every day that the country was at war. And that did create a sense of patriotism and a unity around a purpose and all of that stuff. But here it's just a tiny fraction of the American population fighting in Afghanistan in this 20 year long war. I mean, you might be right that like, in order to have any sort of political project, you need some kind of sense of uh, what the country is and where it's going. And But I just don't know that we're going to get it out of these these wars. So that's sort of the way I think. I mean, and then we- the typical thing, though, is to say, well, what happens if the argument usually is always, well, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to come in and fill that well, role. Okay. So here's the thing. Right? Why don't why don't we do it? Why don't we keep doing it? But instead of doing it to make sure that Iranian children don't get life saving medicine, what if we did it to, <laughs> to go after tax cheats and and, and tax right. havens, international financial criminals and so, things like so that. What like, does that look like? Well, we would just use the same the same tactics, the same. And don't fucking ask me for the details because fuck you. Um, <laughs> I would have to go back and read and, and remember the shit. That no, I, was I just, about. just but, okay, but, you know, that we would use the same infrastructure that we use to inflict crushing deadly sanctions on mm-hmm. poor countries. Well, yeah, after the the global ruling class. 
maybe even the military or the CIA. Like, I mean, may, I don't think we to would go, have be, to particularly, but like, right. yeah, maybe even maybe maybe there would be a case where like we could you know bust down Jeffrey Epstein's island or something. Like, just, <laughs> I mean, we don't even have to. It's in the U.S. But like, <laughs> there's more probably more pedophile islands that we could send the Marines to. And uh, yeah, that's what we need to tell them. We're going to give you a project. We're going to give you a great big fucking fun project. Uh, you're going to get to really fuck with some powerful people or whatever but that's that's always been the 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 argument that people make when they talk about why you can't you can't go the the electoral route to socialism or whatever you can't because what you get elected then you start saying okay we're going to nationalize this and we're going to tax these people and then the people with the money go no you're not and they get out of there and they go to somewhere else and then you lose tax revenue People start getting fired, and then they vote you out in the next election. They go to their special Ayn Rand Disneyland, wherever the, right. they go and Atlas Shrug above the clouds. But America... Screw each other. The United States of New America, Zealand, actually. I think it's New Zealand where mm -hmm. they all go now. Yeah, or Switzerland or Monaco or whatever. Um, but And sometimes the United States. The U.S., it, we definitely have this problem, but it's it's less than any other country in the world. People When, they pull their mon when people pull their money out of their countries in Greece or in... Uh, France under Mitterrand or in uh, all kinds of Latin American countries and and when they pull their money out of those countries because they don't like the policies that progressive governments are pursuing in their countries they more often than not they put it in the United States they send it to US banks and so, so we're that we don't have that we're where everybody wants to park their money we're not the place that people want to take their money out of so if we took a if we had a democratically elected socialist government we would have that problem but it would be less than anywhere else in the world and we have the power to make that problem less bad for other countries that want to go down that route so if we were able to use that power in a in a way so as to make it to make the world safe for socialism in essence we could do that but it, it, it takes the political will to do that but the technical ability is there. Which is a different track than a lot of the people who spend time thinking of these possibilities who think that it's more about dismantling yes. the U.S. state as a entity in and of itself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there might be aspects of the U.S. state that you would need to... to that's a complicated question. Like what... Because th there is an argument to say that like, no, this is baked into the nature of the U.S. state and, and U.S. geopolitical hegemony that uh, was in Marx said about the why the Paris Commune failed. He said you, the proletariat cannot just take over the ready-made machinery of the bourgeois state. It's built the way it is for a reason. And, and maybe and that's even true. if it's not immediately, it, the the functioning of the system will reflect back on to you and and in turn make you a part of it. it well, will one, subsume you eventually. One of the reasons why it's hard to just take over the ready-made machinery of the state, capital can flee so easily. You know, when Marxists say that that the state under capitalism is structurally geared towards serving the interests of the the bourgeoisie, one way of cashing that out is to say, well, it's because the state's jurisdictions do not extend beyond its own borders, but capital is free to move beyond th those borders, right? So, so capital can hop over the border and the state cannot follow it. So, so that creates this 
fundamental imbalance in negotiating power between the state and capital. So the, the state has to do the bidding of capital because otherwise capital can leave. As long as there's another state, uh, there's other states out there who are willing to say, hey, come over here, we'll give you a better deal. Any particular state is always at a disadvantage. So that's one way in which it's happening. Maybe that's why they fill the brains of libertarians and whatnot and conspiracy theory people, which are numerous and on the right in this country with uh, thoughts of against this idea of a global government as yeah. a concept, because that would be the only entity that could at least address or tamp down on this layer of free market, uh, global capital movement. I'm, I understand why people would be concerned about it too, because it could be a corrupt entity, uh, yeah. entity as well, owned by these global capitalists too tamp down on any opposition. It's like, harder for them yeah. to own it. You, they couldn't just flee it. Did the know? EU function uh, in any positive way uh, with regards to this? How did the EU stack it up? It could. If it wanted to, it could. The EU has had been, I think, in a, in a long dispute with Ireland about this because Ireland, Ireland's a tiny country. It's got, it's got a very small internal market. And so it's not like everybody wants to come to Ireland to do business like naturally, like the US. So Ireland has to make itself attractive to global investors. And the way they do that is by saying, you can basically cheat on your taxes if you come here. You can you can put your headquarters here and then you can list your headquarters as being in Ireland, even though you do all your business in Germany or something. And then the German government can't tax you. We'll tax you almost nothing. So Ireland does that. Yeah, the, the European Union sued Ireland for doing this and there was a long, court case about it and i think eventually and eventually ireland because apple was has their headquarters over there so there was a long court case in the eu and apple and ireland and i think apple and ireland eventually won that that's one of the reasons i don't i don't agree with this like legsit thing and these like people on the left who are who just want to like dismantle the eu because i get what they're saying like the eu is as it exists it completely sucks it doesn't do basically anything right it imposes the it's basically a, a a vehicle for german capitalists to impose basically conditions favorable to them on the rest of the continent but if you dismantle it if you tear it apart it just gets worse it doesn't it's not a solution for anything the uk is now out of the european union and they did they did that because they wanted to reclaim sovereignty for themselves or whatever but once you're out you're out of even the minimal level of regulation that the EU creates for capital movement inside of it. And so you're just basically at, you haven't dismantled the whole system of global capitalism. You've just removed yourself from one umbrella, however meager, that sort of contains it and regulates it within a particular part of the world. Which is perfectly in line with kind of what we were talking about in relation to Afghanistan. It doesn't really and this kind of muted response is appropriate because it doesn't really signal anything beyond that chunk of area. I think so. So you're not like you're not reclaiming you're trading one master for another. You're you're saying we're we're out from under the thumb of the the Brussels bureaucrats and the capitalist interests that they serve. You're just subjecting yourself more to the whims of this even more global ruling class that isn't even contained by the EU before Biden was elected. Jo Boris Johnson was talking about a trade deal with the U.S. because once Britain leaves the EU and leaves that market, they have to get some other big market to join. So they so they were saying, well, why not the U.S.? But then 
if you look at the details of how that would work out, it could easily be that they end up effectively privatizing the NHS because of uh, what their American, health system of what American pharmaceutical comp- companies would demand out of that. And they would have no leverage to get a better deal out of that. I mean, th- that's what Jeremy Corbyn said at the end of that campaign in 2019. And people say, well, Australia had a, did a trade deal with the U.S. and they didn't have to privatize their system. But Australia wasn't in the same position. They didn't just leave a giant trading block and, and were desperate to join a new one. They were negotiating from a better position. Th- this is like you you divorce your wife at, you know, 48. And then you're like, time to get back out there. And it's like you're at a you're at a worse position now. You're in no position to be making demands now. You just you had you had a thing, you had a thing that was not perfect, but it was what you had, and now you've left that on your own accord. Nobody wants you now, so you gotta you gotta make you gotta lower your standards, right? How was that? That was better than most of your approach, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> better than Limp and Jimmy for sure. Uh, Do you think any of these are universal principles? Because because these seem at the root of so many different arguments, whether you're on the same political team or not, in internal arguments, external, like all across the board, whether you if something needs to be dismantled or reformed or or if you should get away from the situation entirely. That structure, the dynamics of that argument that apply on so many different layers of different conflicts and arguments that people have about all sorts of issues, even beyond global politics, right? Just for fun, this is real navigate. Do you think that there's any kind of possibility of a an Aristotelian truth? Say, for example, that the unless you do unwind something from the logic in which it perpetuates itself with, you claiming the reins of power with regards to it will inevitably result in your corruption and eventual assimilation into the structure itself. Or is that untrue on a universal level? Power corrupts kind of thing. Power yeah, corrupts yeah, and, yeah. And, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like, like something about human nature that maybe, I mean, yeah, it's possible that that's, that, that that's something you got to look out for in any kind of system but i think i think the specific way in which power corrupts in a given system is determined by the historical conditions that are prevailing at the time like it's not the reason why governments do today do the bidding of capital is not because of some flaw in human nature some fallen state of humanity that arose in the garden of eden i mean maybe it's about that but if it is it's in a very removed sense it's specifically about like going directly to the problem what you find is governments that want to do the right thing sometimes i mean this kind of thing happens so often that you can't just explain it by people not being real socialists or whatever i mean that's probably true in some instances it's probably true that there are traitors, there are uh, opportunists and so forth, but it happens so often that you got to say like, some of them are sincere, right? Some of them are people who really want to do make things better. Like, but why, so why does it keep happening? It can't be the explanation in every case. And the answer is there are structural conditions under capitalism that make it hard to do anything about the power of capitalists. One of those main structural constraints is the mobility of capital across international borders. Do you think that there's any possibility of you seeing the world the same way we were talking about the neoconservatives seeing it at the precipice at the dawn of the invasions 
of Afghanistan and Iraq where the possibility that this scenario you're talking about is at once hard and soft focused in exactly the wrong areas, even though you're right. Could be. I mean, the, the, yeah. the neocons were, many of them were Marxists and Trotskyists. Because the had. other thing is, if some kind of vaguely known as socialists adopted a power like that and then it went wrong, mm-hmm. well, then it would be a hundred year war on the even the nature of social. I mean, it would go so far into that's the human psyche of we cannot do things together. That's you know? what happened. I think that's what happened with the Bolsheviks, that the yeah. Bolsheviks took over. I don't think the Bolsheviks initially had bad intentions, but for various reasons, some of which were their fault, others were not. It ended up being a disaster. And that made socialism and not even just socialism, but it, like even just any kind of progressive liberatory project under any name that gave it a bad rep for a long time, many generations. So you got, you can't just think about the downsides in terms of like, what if you fail? You got to think about the downsides in terms of what if what if the status quo keeps continuing? Yeah, at a certain like, point you have to act. What if what right. if we let climate change destroy the world? And But then, uh, you know, there are all other constraints as well. There are constraints that have to do with bureaucracy. Yeah, that there's something about um, the way bureaucracies work and the standards that bureaucracies hold themselves to, like, you have to be like we have rules and those rules are the same for everybody and they're predictable and you can predict how the rules are going to be applied that's there are advantages to that to be sure but the reason why that form of of bureaucratic administration is so prevalent in capitalist countries is not hard to to decipher capitalists love that capitalists love having consistent predictable rules that they can plan their investments by and it's a problem for uh, um, governments that want to they want to make real radical change because you get these people who are who, who staff the administration and they're not committed to the ideological goals of this new government they're committed to this their own ideology of like we're the ones in charge. We're the competent ones. We have the technical knowledge. We we're fair. We apply the standards consistently, and all that stuff. Like there, there are advantages to all that stuff, to be sure. But sometimes you need like some free thinking. You need to, you need to step outside the box. Yeah, it would ultimately harden and ossify and uh, like like lead to its own demise if there wasn't even at the level of capital. If there wasn't innovation, which yeah, it's always kind of a violent birth controversial thing that and there's this um, love-hate relationship with innovation on wall street right there's there's this swedish uh political scientist whose book i've been reading bo rothstein who did a study of this in the the context of sweden and said that in sweden under the period of uh in the 20th century when the social democratic party was um hegemonic in swedish politics swedish social democrats managed to break out in certain ways not completely but in certain respects in a limited to a limited degree from the logic of reformism and managed to transcend the bureaucratic structures of the swedish state in a few areas by replacing these what he calls weberian bureaucracies after the political scientist max weber with party cadre organizations essentially of the swedish social democratic party almost creating in certain aspects of the Swedish state, a kind of party state that you you might expect to see more in the Soviet Union or in, in communist China, like the, 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 where the certain parts of the state merged with 
the Social Democratic Party. And we, th- we think that that would end up being a disaster and so forth. And, and there's good reason to think it would because it's sometimes how it's happened in Soviet Union and China. But in Sweden, they did it a little bit. They did it with like their, their labor market policy, their, the part of the government that retrained people and put them into new employment and so forth. That in, according to Rothstein, that ended up being a, a cadre organization of the Social Democratic Party and that made it more successful. And yeah, he also, like a high, like a hybrid, like it can respond to new situations, and um, it's hard and, in America because everything is so polarized thinking, black and white mm. thinking. It's kind of part of our cultural here. The idea of adopting and molding something or changing. I mean, I was thinking about this while you were talking, even in relation to leftist act, activist politics. Mm-hmm. Like it does take on the structure of like a look. We have a board mm-hmm. and minutes. And then like a time for people to like air grievances or whatever. We sit in a circle and we eat the same food that they might eat at like an AA meeting. You know, it's like everybody's doing the same shit everywhere in the same uncomfortable chairs with the same plastic Rubbermaid tables and whatnot. Every, it's just a barbecue all the way up to the presidency. <laughs> when you're like, talking I'm about. Not, but I'm not saying stand on your head or like get into a potato bag and like do the yeah. with the worst excesses of the of the 60s. You don't want the fetishization of horizontalism that like the whole Occupy thing where it's like, no, we don't have right, any leaders. Right, right. And it's yeah. like, OK, and we're just yelling charge? out at each other, re- repeating their words. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we don't have an agenda. It's, OK, all right, then have fun in, on your camping trip then. You got to strike a balance there, but in particular with governments, you, when you have this bu- this Weberian bureaucratic model, you end up staffing the government with people who are not ideologically committed to your project, assuming they're like good, faithful, honest civil servants, right? I'm not even assuming they're corrupt or anything. I'm just saying they are not committed to your ideology. They're committed to their own function in the state. They think of themselves as faceless, neutral, fair, just, impartial bureaucrats who have a rules that they have to apply and they stick to those rules and they apply them in a, in a consistent, fair, predictable manner. Dude, That's the military is one and, of the biggest examples of that, even exactly. more. It's like on speed. It, and it's functioning by its own logic and the promotions, like you were saying earlier. And exactly. people in the military need a lot of consistency and a lot of predictability and a lot of sitting in circles and a lot of bureaucracy memos and according to systematized in at least some aspects of the swedish state that they managed to replace that model with people who were actually committed to social democratic ideology and 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 were like thought of themselves as party members in addition to being government employees which can have its downsides to be sure but it also like if you're trying to pursue a political project you want people who are loyal to that political project at the same time i mean we can tie this back to afghanistan even is it like we said earlier the taliban is in a tough situation because the people with the technical know-how the people with the education to run things in afghanistan and get the lithium out of the fucking ground those people are going to get the hell out of there the people who are ideologically committed to the taliban's ideology it's too many word uses of ideology there but you get what i mean they don't have the technical capacity at least not right now to run the afghan government so that's why the taliban is in trouble because they're undone by their their own people who support their political cause those are not the people who know how to run the government so what like, you what you need are people who know how to do th- do things and people who are going to be loyal to you and and share your ideals and want to want to accomplish your political project anti-establishment revolutionary movements you don't always find that right because think about it 
You're trying to overthrow the people who are currently running the government. Who knows how to run the government? The people who are currently running it, probably. They're the ones who most who have the most experience doing it. So and you're that's trying why to need powerful stories in order to even begin the process of unwinding from people who have the grip on right. So you're uh, who, like, on a story in power currently. You either have to keep those people in place and then accommodate yourself to those people, temper your own expectations, or you have to purge them and then find new people. And and, the, not- and the process of purging is never a good one that's that's usually a negative cycle because then you're inviting yourself into an ever expanding possibility of having to either displease or kill and displease more people and becoming kind of an isolated despot which happens yeah a lot around and the world and has happened a lot in history exactly that's a, that's um, another danger it's like you purge you purge one group of people and then you get paranoid and then you start purging even the people you brought on afterwards that's always a danger maybe that was the thing that afghanistan needed uh, if we were going by the lofty goals for paul wolfowitz and our friends who we wish didn't fail in their project but like if it was going to su- succeed by its own logic maybe one of the preconditions for it to even have begin to have the possibility of being success was that you made damn sure that all the generals and all the at least to some extent the people in the military or the generals knew how to re-educate the people who were under them in what exporting democracy like looks like instead of just it being a self-serving thing so when you're talking i'm just imagining part of its failure having been it just was a job it was just a boring bureaucratic job at some point how could it ever develop into this new hybrid country if there weren't people who on the military side at least who were excited and could see this vision were piecing that together day by day brick by brick because it was so clear in their mind it obviously wasn't the case yeah say what you want about fundamentalist deobandi islam at least it's an ethos (laughs) right you know, it's it's um, well, this is like the religious it. commitment to capitalism that people involved with the state must have at some level. They just think if we do an invasion magically, a Chipotle will appear out of the out of the ground. It will it will rise itself. I mean, part of that is they're high on their own supply about, you know, free markets and shit like, oh, of course they would want to start trading and commerce and working at McDonald's and wearing funny little hats and making sure they signed employee documents. And of course that would just happen. That would just come out of thin air because in our world, that's the rock we fucking (laughs) bow down to and point ourselves in the direction of three times a day. Yeah. Anyway, Um, sorry, I got derailed. (laughs) But that says nothing other than like the prevalence of like how bureaucratized, uh, religiously indoctrinated we are into our own miasma that we would think it would be replicable even at an organic spiritual level, even if we're not saying that out loud in another place in the world. That's just we assume that that's how because that's how we do things. That's the only way to do things. That's a pitfall when you're talking about running an empire. I mean, this is something John Dolan, the war nerd, you're listening to his, he had a thing and he has his podcast. And I remember listening to an episode a while ago where he was explaining like America, we can't run an empire. Our military doesn't have enough weirdos in it. What we have is a bunch of 19 year old jocks who play quarterback in high school. And those guys are very good at storming the beaches of Normandy. Those guys definitely have their strengths, but what they're not good at is nation building in Afghanistan. In order to have that, you need weird guys. The British Empire had a guy, when when there was a rebellion in China in the late 19th century, 
the Taiping Rebellion, 1850-1864. That they were rising up against the Qing dynasty. It was this guy who claimed to be Jesus Christ, the or the brother of Jesus Christ. And he got a whole bunch of people to follow him. And it was a huge threat, not only to the, the ruling Qing dynasty, but to all of the foreign businesses and foreign imperial interests in China. And the British Empire were like, we have to do something about this. So they got this guy named Chinese Gordon, Charles George Gordon, who was just a, a really weird guy, like, like had very strange interests and sort of like me, um, flipped around to a bunch of different religions. And he, he was not a typical like military jock kind of guy who just is like, I just follow orders and I do what I told and then I uh, go home, I fuck my wife and I uh, drink whiskey and he's not that guy. So in order to run an empire, though, and defeat like the Taiping Rebellion, you have to have people like him or Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence. Who... What did he do, though? It, it, it's OK if you don't know, but I'm just kind of curious at this point. I don't know what, what he, he did, did to suppress. He was just what... weird at them. <laughs> <laughs> he just signed just, memos and just, also was weird. I'm just remembering he, what I heard on a, a podcast. funny hat while he was. I'm just okay. remembering what I heard on a podcast two years ago. <laughs> I was I like, no. I've been meaning That's to... the whole point of the story. I was like waiting bated breath to figure out like what he did to well, stop he, he like, he Chinese had the, Charles Manson. He was weird enough to know enough about China oh, okay. to like to be able to muster To understand up its logic for lack of a better comparison because the only example that's coming to my mind immediately is like the Jew hunter line in uh, Inglorious Bastards where he says like... If you want to find the rat, you think like a rat. Think like a Jew. <laughs> if I was a Jew, I'd be hiding under the floorboards. And then he shoots right. up the floorboards. You need people who can, like, because they're alienated enough from their own society that they are able to right. put themselves Perceive in the, sh it. the shoes of another society. That's, but what that's the worry. If, if you give somebody who um, is perceived or perceives themselves as alienated, must feel that you're putting yourself at some risk. Maybe, but the, or, that's or also... even within the bureaucracy, putting your ass on the line by, uh, you know, signing off on a project like that. That's also maybe what an empire is for is to like absorb those people and make sure they're not a threat to the system. And they're like, that's true, too. Yeah. Um, you can put them in charge of like conquering. So you, some tribes you heard it first. Matt wants a job. <laughs> Whoever at the CIA is listening to I this. actually, somebody It's a did. veiled threat at the same time. He wants a little bit of power, not even that much. Just give him a little fucking taste. He's been there sitting was, there thinking there was about actually, it in these abstract ways. He just wants the ability at a class to kill someone. At a class at college on, um, it was like on the Vietnam War. There was a guy there who was really weird. He was like autistic or something. I don't know. He was very smart. He's really weird. He was in the army in Iraq, but he he didn't have like a normal job in Iraq. He wasn't like in combat most of the time. He wasn't lifting boxes. He was reconnaissance. He would go into a village and then before the army went and he would go around, he would ask people questions and he would gather information about the village beforehand and then tell the army and then they would go in. And, and one day after class, he comes up to me and he's like, you think you ever think about working for the Rand Corporation? And you could like do anal analysts. You could do uh, like publish uh, analysis for the U.S. military. Yeah, I think you'd be good at that. And I was like, uh, thanks for uh, I don't know about that, but thanks. 
in another life maybe that would be a path based off everything you were telling me earlier now it seems like you might have wanted to answer differently i'm just saying you can that's what an empire needs it needs people like like you know like t lawrence maybe that's even a better example lawrence of arabia academic intellectual as a gay guy he was sort of like on the margins he could understand a completely different culture from around the world and he managed to create a, a rebellion that overthrew the ottoman empire and basically changed the history of that region up to the present day we're still feeling the repercussions of that yeah that's what you need and uh, the u.s military doesn't have enough of those people for its own purposes whether for good or for ill it doesn't have enough weird nerds so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna collect the data who the people who listen to um podcasts and and read various books and and people who watch uh, tim and eric i'll get this data from oh yeah nielsen and and at&t or wherever i need it and then i'll put them into an army and then i'm dropping uh, them back into afghanistan and we're getting it back baby the chipotles are back on the menu we're gonna a bunch of autistic autistic weirdo alt comedy irony buffs in there they'll completely that's crazy. Who watches Tim and Eric? <laughs> you know, whatever. Whatever the, whatever the kids are watching now that's like wild. Rick and Morty fans. Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah. You have to be. You You're going to, be, to Afghanistan, baby. It couldn't be an army full of those people. You need it peons. Yeah, you need, the, you need the grunt guys. You need the, the foot soldiers. You need you, the guys. Yeah, that, you do need the literalists. You, you need those you guys. You need, need those. The, you need the guys who come up with the weird plans and understand like which tribe we should align ourselves with and those guys and then Mm -hmm. you need the guys you need the the 19 year olds to actually do the the fighting it's a it's a balance you got to have both of those people but you do need a shared story as a general theme yeah and you need something to get all of those people together like the propaganda is important and that's what Um, the british empire had that at its heyday um and then mm -hmm. they kind of lost that i mean it's a it's an interesting question of like what did 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 they fall because they lost that sense of identity, or did they lose that sense of identity because they were falling, and they were? You ask that same question. Yeah, I think you Rome can ask or, the same questions about modern day America, or about yeah. Rome, or like his, any yeah. historical thing. It's uh, it's a chicken and egg question, and the answer is usually a, it's a combination of both, and they're in the, mm-hmm. both of those factors are in relation and conversation with each other, yeah. bouncing off of each other at different moments. Yeah, and I guess to relate it back to Afghanistan, uh, I'll just say Afghanistan again. <laughs> yeah, Afghanistan. <laughs> um, Afghanistan. That's what this was about. No, yeah, yeah. It all it, it that that all does that makes sense to me. The structure of what the picture that's, that you're painting here. Um, uh, yeah, it makes like it, it makes the kind of sense that's like like good because uh, like it's the kind of sense you're like oh I already kind of felt that in my head. All right, uh, see you later. Um, We're allowed to be wrong. All right, walk with that, our friends and supporters. Bye bye.